If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God singing, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. On my tombstone, I have a new idea about what should be written there, given what I'm about to do. Fearing nothing, Reverend Myers once preached from Revelation on Mother's Day. And the rest is commentary. To quote our millennial associate minister, what is happening here? First of all, my aversion to Revelation is well known. Not because it doesn't contain some remarkable imagery of creation healed and love sitting on the throne, but because the key to understanding that imagery has been largely lost. And so this very bizarre dream, or maybe it was a hallucination, has been taken over by wild-eyed prophets, and they made a fortune decoding it for all of us. The Tim LaHaye's of the world who told us exactly who gets left behind. Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth assured us that he alone could decipher the true meaning of this ancient vision. And John Hagee of San Antonio built a mega ministry explaining exactly who will be lost and who will be saved. And not surprisingly, those that are saved will look a lot like us. 
like white Christians, as long as we defend Israel, no matter what she does. There's even a direct link from Revelation to the Oklahoma City bombing. In 1993, the Branch Davidians, an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, had locked themselves into a compound near Waco, Texas, under the leadership of the charismatic David Koresh, who also claimed to know exactly what revelation meant. So when ATF agents surrounded the compound and tried to get the Davidians to surrender and release followers, including women and children who were thought to be starving or possibly being abused, a gun battle erupted, killing four government agents and six Davidians, and then a final siege was ordered that resulted in a fire that burned down the compound, killing everyone inside. Each side claimed the other side started the fire, but that day became infamous for anti-government white survivalists like Timothy McVeigh. The inferno happened on April 19th, 1993, and so exactly two years later, on April 19, 1995, McVeigh believed he was avenging those deaths by destroying the Murrah Federal Building. So do I have a struggle with revelation? Yes, I do. Many of those who withdraw from society and use the power of prophecy to gain power for themselves have not only duped countless people and stolen from them, but they've added violent death in an already violent world. Yes, I have my doubts about revelation. Also called revelations, even though the opening word of the book is a singular noun written by someone named John, but not the same John that wrote the gospel, while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, where Rome locked up some of its most notorious Jesus people as subversives. It was there that John had a vision. He saw Christ, whose voice was like a trumpet, whose hair was snow white, whose eyes were flaming, whose feet were bronze, dressed in a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. And his message to John was this, write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. And it was that last phrase, what is to take place after this, that opened the door on the industry that is apocalyptic prophecy. It is also Mother's Day. Although this passage from the last book in the Bible and this cultural observance that began as an anti-war protest, they don't always coincide this way because it is linked on this day to the third Sunday after Easter. And as you know, Easter's a movable feast tied to the lunar cycle. You got it? And yet here we are with a text that's often preached on All Saints Day not surprisingly, since we want to know how many of the saints make it to heaven. And according to the Jehovah's Witnesses who read Revelation, literally it is 144,000. And it is also Mother's Day when pulpits are often given over to praise of motherhood and when preachers often ask, so when was the last time you called your mother, if she is still alive, paired with some unavoidable guilt if she is not? It is also not an easy time for those who have never given birth, whether by choice or not by choice. So this morning, I'm going to do something different, and I'm going to share a word or two with all of you 
about my own mother, which is something I've never done. Words about my preacher father you have heard, but seldom anything much about my mom, except of course that she is an unrepentant Roosevelt Democrat and thinks that Rachel Maddow is a saint. <laughs> so I will begin by telling you this, that if you were ever to meet my mom, Billy Louise Bearden Myers of Bellingham, Washington, now in her 89th year, you would never forget her. But you would also understand why she does not want me or anyone else for that matter going on and on about her. She is very much like the woman I am married to, not fond of being fussed over in public, even though in private they are both often the life of the party. But it is Mother's Day, and we all have mothers, and I want to talk about mine for a moment, because my mom's health is in decline. In fact, I cannot be certain she'll be around on Mother's Day next year. So I'm going to say a few things and hope that she doesn't go on the website and see the video and then call me and say in that tone of voice we all recognize, Robin, this is your mother. <laughs> and then finally, in the end, I'm going to tie it all back to Revelation, really, somehow. But first, Billy Louise Bearden Myers, mother of three, grandmother of seven, great-grandmother of seven, hails from the plains of West Texas. Hillsboro to be exact, and met my father at Abilene Christian College, where all good Church of Christ girls go to meet good Church of Christ boys, because God only knows what would happen if you married a Presbyterian. <laughs> that person would not make it into heaven. I would not be here for starters. Only Church of Christ folk are going to go to heaven. Just remember that. My mom was, in fact, a beauty queen. Uh, who grew up as part of what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, but she had her doubts about the roles that women were expected to play, even though she did play those roles up to a point. She also had one of the most demanding and difficult jobs in the world. She was a minister's wife, and that meant she lived her life in a fishbowl and was expected to be both adoring and deferring to my dad. And she did adore him, but she did not defer to him. After she gave birth to my older sister at age 19, she had me at age 22, and then my younger brother at age 28. And after raising all three of us in tiny, sometimes roach-infested parsonages on the meager salaries provided to Church of Christ preachers, I now realize what unearthly patience and what unfathomable loneliness can define motherhood. Now that I have seen it up close with Sean and my own daughter Chelsea, I sort of understand motherhood in part, not just in the sentimental images of advertising or the gauzy religious memes, or now in the equally deadly illusions that surround social media, but rather as a journey sometimes so demanding that the mother literally loses her very identity, disappears in an exhausting haze of diapers and sleep deprivation. Motherhood can make you crazy, and I am in awe 
of the devotion it requires. My mom played the role of minister's wife and also professor's wife and suffered through many gatherings of the church folk and the faculty. These were parties she would not otherwise have chosen to attend. And she was often asked for her opinion. And then she had to listen to someone else complete her sentences for her. She was devoted to all three of us kids, but she expected us to make it on our own. And yet we all knew something without which none of us can make it. That is, that we were loved unconditionally. We never doubted that for one second. And that's a gift we can never repay. My mom is more than just a beauty. She is fiercely devoted to the idea that if we don't make the world fit for everyone's children, then the world is not fit for anyone's children. At midlife, my mom enrolled in a master's of education program at Wichita State, and after she graduated, she spent 20 years teaching English to junior high school students in the Wichita public schools, and they adored her. Anyone who knows my mom knows that she can be positively identified at great distance by the sound of her laughter, a sound that is both distinctive and infectious. She was a gifted soprano in the church choir. She was a lifelong fashionista, and she loved college basketball, especially Wichita State shockers, and Halloween when she could dress up wildly. When my dad would say no to something that the kids wanted, my mom would quickly load us into the car and then go and buy it for us anyway. And so soon we just started cutting out dad from the whole request process if we wanted a new pair of jeans. My mom absolutely loves to eat out and she passed that addiction on to me. She lives in a small condominium in Bellingham and just had her kitchen remodeled, a kitchen she would be the first to tell you she never cooks in. Her appliances, therefore, look absolutely spotless because she would rather go out with her friends than eat alone. She revels in the accomplishments of her children and she suffers when they are struggling. She asked me recently about the book, so how long, Robin, how long does it take to write this book about God? I said, Mom, it's coming along. And she does not know yet I cut all my hair off. And <laughs> I will be going there in a couple of weeks, and I'll have to explain what will not make any sense to her. She will not, however, ever take you down with her troubles. She was more interested in you having a good time and in understanding the medicinal qualities of coffee and conversation, and she likes sweet things and passed that on to me as well. Growing up, we nicknamed her the Pink Peacock Restaurant Fly. It was a sort of tribute that the kids made up to her devotion to first always looking put together and then second to her love of eating out. So on road trips, mom would begin to study the restaurant possibilities as we rolled through small towns and say, oh, that one looks good to my dad. That looks good. And my dad would just drive a few feet past the entrance and then say, feigning regret, oh, that's too bad, we missed that one. <laughs> and finally, in a tone of voice we all understood, she would say, pull over, Robert, we are starving. <laughs> her friends all call her the Texas Queen, 
although politically my mom is not at all fond of Texas, it is a tribute to her ability to preside at any gathering as a kind of social monarch, to work as hard as anyone I know to see to it that everyone has a good time. Only a few times did I see my mother cry, but I learned to pay attention when she did. Last night I heard Sean talking to my mom on the phone, and I heard her say from the other room, Billy, you are the best mother-in-law that I could ever have hoped for. And I feel the same way about my mother-in-law. We are both blessed. I also watched my mom's theological evolution over her lifetime, perhaps because she was raised in a very strict world, the Church of Christ, legalistic and I think particularly paranoid about human sexuality, or because she just saw so much church close up, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that she grew weary of pomp and certainty. There is so much deception in the world, she told me once, the last place I want to hear more of it is in church. So she does not go to church now, even though her church-going friends try ceaselessly to get her to go with them. I have gone and I have listened, she told me once, but I heard nothing real. So I stay home and I read good books. And then she says, are you hungry? I know a great new restaurant. <laughs> now about my mom's failing heart, she has congenital heart failure, and she says about it, she's very, she's very sanguine about it. She said, you know, I don't have a strong heart, uh, but it has served me well all these years. It's just wearing out, but I have no regrets. What a life I have lived. But of course, I disagree. I think she has a very strong heart. Which brings me back to Revelation. If people would just stop buying and selling these metaphors, it might have something to teach us. It's a dream, not a report. And it's the kind of dream that might keep any one of us alive in prison if we were dying there. So what if Revelation is no more complicated than this? Someday the power of love will win and the power of evil will lose. God will make all things new and we will live as it were in a vast city together. Jews and Christians and Muslims and everyone else too. And some of the most despicable characters will be surprised at their heavenly neighbors. Because when John gazes around the throne room of God, he does not see a lion, a lion, the traditional symbol of power and fearful strength. He sees a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. The lamb takes the scroll and after suitable praise from the heavenly choir, he proceeds to open it and unseal it. And what is the message inside? That abundant life does not consist in the exercise of power. And no one ultimately conquers through power. That is the Roman way. Our way is the way of the lamb. And the lamb wins, not Caesar. Rome sent John to prison to shut him up, and this dream is John's way of refusing to keep silent. 
Someday, he dreamed, all hierarchies will disappear. Someday, we will live together in harmony and peace. Out of tribulation, God can bring a different kind of victory, and to that coronation, we will all be invited. The guest list is everybody. And who are these people in these white robes? Are they 144,000 very special people? No. This is a metaphor because it seemed like a huge number to John. It's really all of us, the great multitudes of those redeemed by love, not divided by fear. We are all called to choose between the Lamb and Caesar, so let's make the choice. Otherwise, our abstention will be a victory for hatred and fear, and I'm not ready for that. Are you? Are you ready to give up on love? Because if we do, we've given up on life. And come to think of it, I know someone who knows this as well as anyone knows this, my mom. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.